All right, Alan, I got to tell you some news. I was floating through LinkedIn today. Fabric Air bought Borealis Wind. Borealis Wind's been acquired. Get out. I'm telling you, and and the you know what makes me... I'm, I'm super happy for Borealis Wind, but Daniela Roper, if you're listening, why we didn't get the exclusive to, to let this out, we don't know. Where's the love? Where is the love? Exactly. So we're, we're, we're going to jump into some things this week. Um, we'll maybe talk about this Fabric Air and Borealis tie-up here later on, but uh, what we're going to discuss now is Econor actually pausing an offshore floating wind farm, uh, just kind of based on basically commercial right now is what it looks like. The technical side and the commercial side uh, not uh, lining up to be the project they want right now. Uh, and then also just a quick segment on ERAV for wind turbine services. So a project that Fugro is involved with and some other government agencies uh, to basically electrify and autonomize some of the offshore wind farm maintenance activities in the North Sea. And then we take a look at the recent publication from DNV on the challenges of wind turbine blade durability. And we asked Rosemary and Joel their thoughts on the industry-leading publication from DNV, talking about all the, the blade problems that exist and what to do about them. And uh, Joel and Rosemary provide some really good perspectives on that. And then our Wind Farm of the Week is the Rattlesnake Road Wind Farm up in Oregon. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and renewables expert, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Up in Norway, Equinor has uh, put the Trollwind project on hold due to technical, regulatory, and commercial challenges. Uh, the project was aimed to address the electrification needs uh, in the oil and gas industry and provide power to the Bergen area. Uh, and obviously in Norway, anything offshore is going to be floating. Uh, so the, the problem appears to be uh, that the floating technology that they were going after wasn't fully developed enough for Equinor. And obviously the project financing, everything got more expensive over the last couple of years and, and the project didn't make any sense anymore. Uh, so they're, they're not necessarily killing it, but they're just waiting to, uh, for the technology to develop a little bit more. So I, I think this is a real interesting case because off the coast of Norway, and this is off the southwest coast of Norway where this, where this farm was supposed to be, uh, it's really tough environment there. Right. And, and because they had to do they're trying a unique way of doing floating offshore with the cables, you know, suctioned into the seafloor there. Um, they just felt like they didn't have the technology breakthrough that they needed. And, and Joel, I, I think this is going to be pretty common as we get further and further north. Right. It, it's it's a rough area to put wind turbines in. I think it's going to be common right now if with offshore floating wind. Right. Because there's. What we've talked about over the last six months, year of all this floating wind, floating wind, is there's so many different designs, there's so many different engineering teams working on this problem. We know there's ways to do it. We know there's tension leg platforms and spars, and there's this floating here, and we can moor it this way or we can moor it that way. Um, but then have we really decided, can we just take the same nacelle and tower or nacelle and bearings and blades and throw them on these things? We don't, you know, in my armchair engineering opinion, I say no, um, but... 
all of this stuff isn't quite sorted out. So you see, we've talked, and so I don't know if it's necessarily talking about, yes, it's rough seas, Southwest Norway, the whole Norwegian coast can get pretty bad, but I think it's just floating wind in general. If someone right now says, we're gonna, we're gonna put in a floating wind farm that's gonna be utility scale, I don't think the industry's ready for it. You have California that has the whole floating thing going on, and we've been hearing now, I mean, of course, some of this is regulatory driven, but 2032 before we see anything out there is, is some of the words that we heard at ACP. So, I mean, that's that's nine years down the road. So I, I don't necessarily think it's environmental conditions. I think it's just floating wind in general is not quite ready for utility scale. Yeah, and... and- I just got uh, PES Wind Magazine came in the mail, and there's an article actually about Norway and off and offshore wind and how difficult it is. And the article is really good uh, because it, there's a lot of nuances here. It's not as easy as we're just going to put some wind turbines out in the water. They, they need to do a bunch of work out there first. And they, I mean, obviously, Norway has a lot of experience in oil and gas, but this is a little bit different, right? It's just a little more complicated problem. Yeah, but I think that uh, you know, like you said, the the big big markets for floating offshore wind are going to come in the the twenty thirties, um, and so companies like Equinor are trying to get that lead now. I mean, most of the floating offshore wind farms that are in place already are Equinor ones, so um, you know they have built up leading experience, and I guess they felt like this one was moving a bit too fast, but. For now, and, you know, someone like Norway, it might seem like, oh, this is a really stupid way to put a wind farm in because there's plenty of opportunity for fixed bottom offshore wind in, um, you know, in northern Europe. So why bother going to the expense of developing new technology for floating wind? But the long game is that floating wind isn't going to be competing with fixed bottom wind. It's going to be competing with other ways that countries like, well, you know, states like California, countries like Japan, um, places that don't have the possibility to really build a lot of any other kind of um, renewable energy technology. Um, they're going to be having floating offshore wind or they're going to be looking at, you know, really expensive solutions like importing liquid hydrogen or, you know, something like that. Um, or in the case of, you know, Japan trying to build interconnectors with their neighboring countries who they may be not that politically friendly with. Um, so I think it's wrong to consider floating offshore in comparison to fixed bottom offshore, um, or onshore for that matter. Definitely the, yeah, the lucrative opportunities that companies like Equinor want to be the leader for, um, are, are going to be in places where they don't have other alternatives. And I think once they get through all that and, you know, learn from those kind of projects, which will be, you know, expensive, um, there is the scope for floating offshore to to come down and be eventually be cheaper than fixed bottom. It's you know it's a possibility. It should be less resource, um, less materials intensive. Um, there are some advantages for maintenance and that sort of thing. So I still think you know over in the time frame of a decade or two that it's definitely a promising technology. Um, I think that this this particular project will be just a, a tiny hiccup. And you know you've got to remember that it comes in the uh, in the the environment of you know, every infrastructure project is having huge problems at the moment with supply chains and that sort of thing. So, it, you know, it isn't surprising that they want to put a pause on on this one and focus the wind turbines that they can get, the steel that they can get, you know, onto projects that they know are going to make money now. Yeah, and in the grand scheme of things, Nor- the Norwegian uh, electrical grid is 
90 plus percent renewable already, right? It's all, it's mostly all hydro. So it's not like they're hurting for energy or hurting for renewable energy. Most of this stuff would probably be exported. So at this point in time, maybe it, it, it makes sense financially, like they've, like they've decided to pump the brakes. Equinor has such a vast amount of experience in offshore wind that they can assess these things probably better than any company on the planet at the moment. And I think they're making the right decision for now, for sure. Over in the UK, the National Robotarium and Frugro are co- collaborating on the development of an electric remotely operated vehicle for maintenance and repair tasks on offshore wind turbines. So, Joel, this is right in your wheelhouse. The, the partnership is part of a 1.4 million pound underwater intervention for offshore renewable energies called the UNITE Project. So they always have to have an acronym, right? Always an acronym. United States, UK, same thing. Got to have an acronym. The UNITE aims to enhance health and safety in the offshore wind industry by reducing the need for potentially hazardous maintenance missions conducted by crewed support vessels. Uh, the EROVs, as they're called, will address various sector challenges, including reducing carbon emissions, improving term turbine productivity and making maintenance and repair exercises more cost-effective and efficient. So, Joel, uh, what they're thinking is a lot of these offshore uh, wind inspections and surveys can be done remotely with a battery-powered vessel. Is, is that seem plausible in the long term or even the short term? Short term, man. So these projects have been going on for quite a while. This isn't the first one of its of its type. Um, the first, some of the first projects were, all right, let's go out to, with our normal vessel, crude vessel, and we'll put a ROV in the water. And now we're going to make it a little bit more, um, efficient by giving it some kind of machine vision or something, right? So now it can follow the, it can do an inspection of the monopile, say subsea by following it itself. And instead of having a pilot fly it, you remove that pilot cost, but then you're also more efficient in getting it done. So that was step number one. That's cool, right? So now we've got something that can autonomously inspect a monopile or a cable route or something like that from the vessel. So at the same time, those those developers were creating autonomous surface vessels, which like X-Ocean has one, Drix, Teledyne, um, the Gavia system, Kongsberg has some. There's a Everybody makes them now. Um, they're surface vessels that are basically robotic and you can launch them from another vessel or from shore and they can go out and do route surveys or other things of that sort. So now you've got the same, you've got, hey, we can do this ROV here. Now let's take that ROV, let's cut the umbilical and let that thing be an autonomous underwater vehicle to like survey a cable route by itself. So now you take that same machine vision smart stuff, put it in the water and it can follow a cable route and inspect the cable route by itself without having the vessel. Super cool. Now you've gotten a couple of different things here. Now you take that AUV and the ASV and then you put those together. So now you can go quayside. You can be onshore in the port and you can launch a vessel that cruises out by itself and then releases an autonomous underwater vehicle. It becomes the the basically the 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 primary up, up top. The secondary vehicle goes down, does its inspections, comes back, mates back to that primary vehicle, and then they go back to shore. And now you can do it all in electric power or hydrogen power that's happening as well. How many of these vehicles could they possibly need? Now, the UK is planning to have like 11,000 offshore wind turbines uh, in the near future. And obviously, they're going to keep putting them out there until they don't no more need for electricity, I guess. So you're talking about maybe 15, 20,000 wind turbines offshore. How many of these vessels would they would they need to go do this work? Five, ten, a hundred, thousand? Probably a hundred. 
I would say you you need you, you're the the if you look into operations and maintenance for offshore wind farms, there's a lot more going on than you think. It's not just changing oil and looking at the blades every once in a while. There's a lot of things that happen subsea uh, and even topside. So there's I mean there's been a few programs. I know Perceptual Robotics was a part of a program taking in one of those ASVs out with the drone on top of it, launching it keyside from shore, autonomously driving it out to the wind farm, and then taking a drone off from the deck and inspecting the blades and coming back. So now imagine if you had that vessel with a drone on it and with an AUV, so you can go out to a turbine, drop the AUV, do the subsea inspection, take the drone off, do the topside inspection, come back, boom, boom, land, and both move on to the next one. You're removing... The, the ROI on that is amazing because you're removing a fifty dollars to $100,000 a day SOV with 60 people on it. Are there regulatory restrictions on that kind of operation where you have a remotely controlled vessel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's well, you have the you have drone regulations, but then you have the same kind of things for, um, you, you know, that vessel needs to be able to abide by all maritime laws. So it has to... I mean, there's there's autonomous vessels. Ocean Infinity, Ocean Infinity has created the Armada fleet. They're 73 meters long a piece, and they're ghost ships. There's nothing else. There's no you don't need anybody on them technically to drive them or to operate them. So this stuff see this stuff seems like it seems like science fiction, right? It's not. It's go it's going on every day right now. Hey, uptime listeners, we know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. Well, over the weekend, I was at an urgent care facility. And I had a lot of free time on my hands. So what did I do? I started looking up Wind Power Lab's LinkedIn page and reading all the things that were posted. And one of them was uh, the new DMV report on the challenges of wind turbine blade durability. I thought, well, I got a couple hours to kill. Let's go through this thing. And it was a remarkably big, remarkably good document summarizing all the blade issues I think all of us have been talking about. And to see it in a sort of condensed form, <laughs> out of DNV, which is obviously everybody respects, is a good start, right? So let, let me summarize what they see are trends in wind turbine blades. One, higher uncertainty in blade maintenance costs for new blade models. True. Significant blade problems affecting the industry, including top-tier turbine and blade manufacturers requiring large, time-consuming inspection campaigns. Boy, don't we know about those. Uh, significant numbers of turbine collapses due to blade failure. Yep. An increase in severe lightning damage, particularly on blades with carbon components. And yes, we all have experience with that. Uh, structural blade damage initiating from relatively minor features that would not have been expected to have propagated in the past, for example, at conventional details such as core ramps, Rosemary, uh, and then higher incidence of severe leading edge erosion early in operating life. Have they, have they, I think we all here have seen all of these things that Rosemary has 
been probably a lot closer than uh, Joel and I, but does that make sense, Rosemary, that all, these are the sort of the highlights for blade problems at the moment? Yeah, it's interesting because I haven't been working in this this part of the industry for more than a few years, right? So I haven't seen seen a trend. I've, I've been surprised. In my background was working for a uh, wind turbine manufacturer and before that it was in academia um, designing, you know, the research and new methods of design. And so I've seen the, the broad trends in the industry but then when I came into working on defects and helping manufacturers, um, you know, resolve issues with potentially serial defects, I've been surprised that there were so, so many, that they were so common, but I didn't get that snapshot of, I've only got a snapshot. I haven't got that experience from 10 years ago, how many blade um, serial defects did we DC in wind farms? I've only seen what it's like now. So this is really interesting to see this report and have them be able to provide that trend over time and say, yeah, okay, this, um, the amount that we're seeing now, it is an unusually large number of, um, of failures compared to what we saw in the past. And it makes sense. It fits in with what I know. Like I've noticed with, with Lightning, I was working a lot with the Lightning team when I was um, working for a manufacturer. Um, and so I did see the change there that, you know, the previous Lightning systems were a lot more simple and they worked pretty well. Um, they did what everyone expected them to do. And then with the newer systems, everyone kind of realized that, you know, blades are really changing a lot. They're getting longer, fast, they're getting new materials in them. Um, and things are a bit different now that blades are so long. And with these new materials, then it means that a lot of the technologies uh, are complicated and have changed quickly. Uh, I definitely felt that in the the period that I was working for um, the manufacturer that, you know, the start of the time when I was there, I think I started in 2016 at that company, things moved at a nice, safe pace that engineers could feel okay with, you know, um, things are changing, but we're all confident in it. Um, and then a couple of years into that role, all of a sudden it's like, we've got to move fast. We've got to put out a longer blade. We've got to, you know, if you want to keep up in the market, we've got to put out bigger and bigger turbines. We've got to use carbon fiber. We've got to, uh, I don't know, all these other um, technologies, protrusions, and uh, I don't know, there'd be a dozen of them that all came in within a few years. And then a few years after that, you start seeing, okay, a lot of these really fast projects have have issues, which, I mean, you would definitely expect that. You can't change things and have it, um, you know, do exactly what you expected every time. Um, so it it does make sense to me that there's a lot of, a lot of failures are, are resulting now from that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's good to see it all put together in one place. So you don't think it's technical challenges as much as the speed at which the industry had to move? Yeah, the speed that the industry had to move highlighted the technical challenges because in the past, you know, you would have had uh, the company would have been working on one or two two new technologies like this and they probably would have taken a lot longer to, um, you know, feel good about putting it out. But, um, you know, there's been some really big changes now that have happened in just a, just a few years. So, uh, you know, you don't have time anymore to say, okay, this is a new technology. We'll test it in the lab first. Then we're going to make a test blade and see how that works. Then we're going to put it up on a test wind turbine and wait a few years to see how that performed. Um, and then we're going to roll it out gradually and then keep on learning from the experience and bringing it back in. Because, I mean, when you do it like that, it takes, first of all, that process takes many years. But secondly, you 
if you've just got a couple of test turbines, that's not enough instances to start to see, you know, statistical um, rates of, of failure. And that's what you get when you've got, um, you know, even if you did go through that whole process, I said, and you've got, you know, like one test turbine at the end of your five year, you know, technology um, campaign, one test turbine that's been out there for two years. And that would be like a super conservative, slow way of um, developing a new technology. Um, then, you know, so that's got three blades on it. Um, and then, okay, now we're doing serial production and you don't, you know, do a little bit of serial production. If you want to, you know, get the, the benefits of, um, of that whole process and how, you know, everything is designed to get costs down, 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 down. That means that you're, you know, putting a blade out of the factory every single day. Um, and you know, every other, factory that's making components for the wind turbine needs to be operating maximum on the one thing um, over and over and over again to make that cheap. So you go from one test turbine up to at least hundreds and more likely thousands of um, wind turbines out there with this same design. And then failures don't happen immediately. They happen, you know, after a year, two years, three years, usually in that first few years period is when you start to see um, the bulk of the the problems, but then there's thousands um, of turbines out there, and so it, you know, it's 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 a delayed res response. So of course the manufacturers are then going to go back and um, you know make changes that they need, and that's totally normal, you know, iterative design process. However, there are hundreds of wind farm owners that are distraught over <laughs> the fact that they've got these big failures and um you know in the case of uh, a wind turbine blade or any other component um uh, big component like that it's no trivial matter to replace these um you know getting a crane out there um to a site after it's already been fully commissioned and you know all the cranes have gone getting a crane back there can take a long time I, I don't know what it's like in every country but in Australia there's not that many cranes around that um that are you know big enough to install these modern um 100 meter plus tall um, wind turbine yeah, towers and all the parts on them. Um, and then, you know, other complications, has the, have the factories, the turbine factories, have they moved on from that particular design and now they're, you know, cranking out another one? Uh, it might mean that you have to get, you know, for example, in the case of a blade, you have to get a blade out of the, um, out of the yard and uh, a mold, sorry, a mold out of the yard and bring it back into the factory and then set it back up just to make, you know, the, a few blades to replace it. It, it can take a year, you know, to replace a blade. And um, I don't know, I think probably a lot of wind farm operators <laughs> listen to this podcast. I don't think that any of them would like the thought of they've got a turbine sitting by idle now for a year while they wait for a new blade for, you know, a manufacturer defect that everyone accepts is, <laughs> is their fault but doesn't make you feel any better about every day that goes past with your turbine shut down. So, um, yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's a natural consequence of moving so fast. We we need the technology development to happen, but it kind of all, I don't know, it didn't happen gradually. You might have expected we've had um, utility-scale wind turbines since the 90s or so, say. Um, why is it that in, yeah, the 20-teens we had this sudden acceleration in technology development that's causing headaches now? Um, so yeah, it might've been nicer if we'd been able to smooth, <laughs> smooth it out over that whole period, but it's not the way it's worked out. And, um, we'll definitely reap the benefits in, you know, 2030, I'm sure all the turbines will, um, have moved past 
this crunch uh, and hopefully, you know, the pace of change will slow down a little bit. I mean, it should. Um, but, yeah, for now it can feel like things are out of control and, you know, I, I bet that the warranty departments of the wind turbine manufacturers are really crazy busy at the moment based on the amount of work that I'm, I'm seeing. Well, that's where D&V comes in here because I, they have picked up on all those things, Rosemary, and I think they're trying to plug the gaps <laughs> with some of the recommendations. So I, I want you, Joel, and you to hear some of these and, and provide feedback on them because, Rosemary, from the manufacturer's perspective, Joel, from the aftermarket and seeing these blades in service, I, I think they DMV has done a pretty good job of, of – figuring out ways to eliminate some of these problems. First, uh, conduct detailed blade diligence prior to manufacture of new blades for a project, which would ideally include design for manufacturer reviews. Uh, such reviews evaluate the intersection between blade design, manufacturing, and quality processes to identify previously uncovered risks. I think that's, a first of all, a good thing. We do it in aerospace all the time. I haven't seen it much in wind, but this makes sense to me. Oh, that's a great shameless plug for DNV's business development department, right? Because that's what they do. that's what they do. They're the ones who certify them. But they have certified these blades, also. I mean, let's let's be clear. I mean, aren't they also, um, you know, insulting their own their own process? They should say we should conduct more detailed blade due diligence before we let these guys go. No, I, I think they they do. Yes, all of them are certified, of course. But I think that. The tough thing here is, unless it's in the certification process, GE, Siemens, Vestas, they're not going to open up their playbook to give to anybody. They're not going to give it to Wind Power Lab. They're not going to give it to an asset owner. They're not going to give it to an insurer. They're not going to just not going to do it. So unless it's the body that is certifying the process, that those are the only people outside of the OEM that get to see these designs. I think that DNV might be being a little bit naive here because, I mean, I don't know about you, Joel, you work on um, root cause analysis as well, right? Yeah, the ones that I've worked on, the root cause analysis that I've worked on, it's not like you get the root cause and you're like, oh, well, duh, you should have known not to do that. It's always a new technology and it has caused a new failure mode that, that you, no one had ever seen before. It's not something you would check off if you went through and, you know, um, yeah, like witness the manufacturing of a blade and it would be obvious to an outside observer that this is going to cause bad quality. It's it's new new stuff where you don't know yet how it breaks. And I mean, I, I often say that, you know, I've got like 20 years engineering experience now and the, the, the main point of that is that I know how things break, right? That's any of us that have been in the, the field for a long time, you can look at something, you can say, okay, this is going to break here, here, here and here. So we'll test for that. There are dozens of great engineers with decades of experience on any one of these blade projects that have looked at it and said, this is where it's going to break here, here and here. And they have, you know, um, listed out the, the things that they think could go wrong. And during these really fast periods of development, sure, they're not going to get to every single one of those risks that they've identified. And it causes a lot of angst in the, you know, in the canteen, the engineers are talking together, you know, stressing about a risk that they've foreseen that they can't test. But that's not always a thing that ends up going wrong. Um, and it's quite normal in an engineering design process that, you know, you prioritize your risk. You do the, the ones that you think are likely to um, happen and you do the things that would have really bad consequences if they happened. Here's, here's one thought as well. In the engineering world, composites specifically are very hard to model. And the reason being is because from piece to piece, you know, you're using balsa wood 
right? That's a natural phenomenon. So like, it's not like you have this X grade steel and you're going steel to steel. That Those things are easier to model. It's easier to model the aluminum frame of a car than it is to mo and see where it will fail and what will happen under loads and these things than it is to have a, a composite structure because a composite structure by design is inherently this art meets science. Not everything is perfect. So that so those are tough as well, right? And what we see, I know from the RCA standpoint, Rosemary, like you're saying, is you can do all the due diligence you want on the design, yes, but you have design errors. These are things coming out of the factory, right? You have design errors, and then you have manufacturing errors. Two, two completely separate things. Because what we see a lot in the RCA world where it may have been designed just fine, but all of a sudden, like, you know, the shear web isn't glued properly, or you have a kissing bond instead of a good mechanical and chemical bond in and, and a joint or something of that type. So, so th some of those things, though, when you see them, Right, like we've seen fleets of blades that have in the leading edge where there's an overlap in the leading edge where they where they sandwich together, they bite together, and then they put a, you know put a basically what would be a piece the the glue that sticks them together and the tape on the backside as for bad terms, but those things aren't aren't properly mated, right? So that technically, when you see a bunch of those. That looks like a manufacturing error, but it's actually a design error because it's the design of how you manufacture them isn't proper. So some of those things, how long and, and how long do you get to review? You know, I think that you're definitely right, but I would I wouldn't agree that uh, a design error and a manufacturing error are completely separate because um, you if you work at a, a manufacturer as a designer, then your job is to design for manufacture. So it's very easy to, you know, make a recommendation. Oh, you should be designing for manufacture. Of course they are. You know, that's what they have, you know, their um, decades of experience, these manufacturing companies um, and all of their learning has been about, you know, this is the way we designed it. This is how it's actually built. Um, so they either change the design to avoid that error or they, you know, they, they know the strength of the real as built material. Not, they're not just going off, you know, little, um, perfectly made samples that they've tested in a lab and then making their design off that. And then, you know, crying when the real manufactured wind turbine blade isn't strong enough, they maybe did that, you know, back in 1980, um, and, you know, learn from it. And there's a big, you know, when you look at um, old wind turbines and look at a lifetime extension, one of the, the big reasons why you're able to extend the life often of a wind turbine blade that should have already used up its life is that we know so much more now about the actual strength of these, um, these components as built so you can say, okay, we used to use a safety factor of, I don't know, five, five times. And now we know that it's actually okay to use one of, of three and a half times or, you know, whatever the, um, the factor may be and the specific example. So yeah, I, I definitely you're right. And I mean, I'm certainly never looking, um, at root cause analysis where they find the root cause was that the design was just wrong. It's always that the manufacturing did not, um, allow the, but the finished blade to have the design intent. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're definitely right that that's the issue. And I guess DNB is right that that's the issue, but DNB is wrong to say the solution is designed for manufacture when that is most definitely what is already happening. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit, 
It's a bit easy, right? Oh, you should think about how these products look when they're actually manufactured. They're saying that to a manufacturer, you know, like, um, the bulk of the employees in any of these companies are manufacturing employees. They're not, you know, design engineers are, you know, uh, at LM Wind Power is a few hundred design engineers. Um, and then there's, you know, 10,000 manufacturing um, employees. So, you, you know, it's come on. They, they, they do think about manufacturing. Let, let me go through a couple more bullet points here from DNV. I think this is important. And they're going to touch on some of the things, Rosemary, you mentioned, and Joel, you mentioned them too. Uh, reference DNV's turbine review reports, uh, which include risk statements and technical evaluation of specific blade models based on ex DNV's experience. So sort of like looking back and then applying what you learned from the previous blades onto new blades. Makes sense. Uh, evaluate blade manufacturing facilities, capabilities, and processes. This includes review of factory conditions, process capabilities, in process blade fabrication quality, quality system effectiveness, and the finished product. So again, if blades are made in different factories around the world, are they out producing the same level of quality? Are they all doing the same thing? That's a, a, a decent approach. Uh, monitor blade production. Okay, this is, this is the interesting one. Monitor blade production, which may include witnessing manufacturer of and evaluating the quality of blades for a given wind project. This process seeks to reinforce good quality, prevent or capture flaws, and possibly influence blade manufacturers to modify or improve processes that result in quality lapses and escapes. So what they're saying is putting another set of eyes that's not getting paid by the manufacturer into the facility to monitor for quality, a separate oversight. So we speak about that with a lot of clients at Windpower Lab. Um, right now we're doing a large project for an operator in the EU where they're getting some blades made and they had the first few of the blades delivered to site. It's a, a phased out site. And when they got them on site, they went to go hang them and they had issues already. So they're like, hey, we need, we need you guys to look at this thing. So we talked to, we've done it um, in multiple manufacturing facilities, audit, basically audits of the process. And then I think the next bullet here we'll talk about probably, it goes along the same thing, is inspecting them as they roll off the line. Because you can repair them on, at the factory much better than you can repair them in the field. And then if you're not following your process, because that's the big thing, right? So you hold, when we do these site, these site visits and these QAQC things, they hand us their processes and we go through the processes and then look at the end product. And if the end product doesn't match what the processes say, then they've got to go back and fix it. And sometimes there's just stupid stuff, right? Like like handling mistakes. There's a crack in the in the gel coat because they grabbed it in the wrong spot or something like that. Stuff happens all the time. Um but yeah, you'd be actually really surprised to see that these blades coming directly off of the manufacturing floor are are already full of defects. I think insurance companies are going to get to what the next DMV bullet point is, which is inspect blades and assess for inspection results. Uh, and DMV goes on to say, this may include detailed internal and, and external inspections of new blades before or after installation on the turbine, as well as at the end of warranty and during operations phases of the wind project. So Joel, you've hit right on it. The, the insurance industry is going to force this. This is not going to be a DMV driven thing as much as the cost of insurance. It's interesting though, because most of these suggestions are already things that are, you know, well known in the industry and are being done. Um, I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, that there has been all the proper inspection, quality inspection throughout the process, but because it's a, a new 
you know, a new design feature, say uh, either a new material or um, a new manufacturing process or, or something like that, it turns out that the inspection process actually wasn't suitable for it, but they didn't realize until they started seeing failures and did a root cause analysis. So I've seen a few of those where it's like, you know, we, we 3D scanned all this exact feature. I have the images that show there's no flaws here. And yet, um, you know, a year of operation after a year of operation in the field, we've got cracks forming. Um, what on earth is, is going on? And then they realize, oh, okay. Um, we thought that this inspection process would be suitable, um, but it turned out not to be. Um, and I think the, the underlying thing for all of this is all this stuff is well known. It's all been doing to a certain extent. You could do it more and that's easy to say, you know, just do, do more, take more care, don't make these mistakes. Um, and that if you said something like that, then you would fit in very well in the engineering department in any of these manufacturing companies. The engineers really want to be very cautious um, and make sure the product that they're designing is going to be good. But there's this commercial pressure of everybody else is making bigger wind turbines. Everybody else has these new features. You know, company X has carbon fiber blades now. Company Y is using protrusion. Company Z has a 150 meter long blade. Um, and so it's not possible for a company to say, no, we're going to go, we're going to go safe. Um, and we're only going to make what we know um, 100% is not going to fail because they're not going to have you know, any sales. And so maybe in five, 10 years time, their competitors are going to go bankrupt from all of the warranty claims. Um, but they will have gone bankrupt before that because they had no sales for a few years. So that's the real tension that, um, you know, stuff like this can't actually solve that. How do you, how do you solve those sorts of problems? To me, I think that you, it's necessary to periodically go through phases where you have a lot of failures in the field and fix them and learn from it. Then you've got the technology and you've got the robustness in a few years, but the period that we're in now, it's very difficult. And it, for the greater good, that makes sense. But for any individual wind farm operator, they're still stuck with assets that aren't performing as they should be. And it's a lot of work for them to get, you know, get what they deserve. They deserve to have um, fully functioning wind turbines for the amount of money that they paid. It's not on them to wear the, you know, the cost of the experimentation of the manufacturer. So, yeah, anyway, lucky that there's people like Joel and me that can can help them get the outcome that they need on each of those projects. A lot of this uh, paper that we read here is, I mean, you're reading down the menu of services that we offer at Windpower Lab to protect asset owners, right? Monitor blade production, do the inspections, you know, um, instrument them when you can, monitor them from lightning, make sure that they're good quality coming out of the factory. Like these are things that you would think are no brainers. And Rosemary, you do make a point where like, yeah, they're staying, they're stating things that are known in the industry, but it's a surprising how many operators don't actually do this, right? So what like the, the term, the term that was used in oil and gas that I, you know, I take over here as well is having a bird dog in the field. It's the same thing that's used on offshore vessels, whatever. But the bird dog is the client rep. That's that person that is an independent third party hired by the client to come and say, or an asset owner to go and look at the, the turbine blades. And that person becomes their their eyes and ears to make sure that they buy a good quality product. And that person is a, is a seasoned engineer, knows what they're talking about, knows what they're looking at. And it's amazing how many things that you can pick up uh, at, that, at the early stages that just aren't aren't seen. All right. The last two things from DNV are implement a robust blade management program for your new or operating wind projects, including proactive inspections and quality control for field repairs. 
Rosemary and Pardalote and, and Joel at Wind Power Lab. Sound familiar? Standard stuff. Standard stuff, right. Uh, and the last one, which affects my little business, is analyze and use data from various types of sensors, including turbine-based lightning sensors, load sensors, etc., to monitor blade durability and lightning activity. Uh, so I think what we're saying is you need to be monitoring and inspecting your stuff. <laughs> it's to keep it that simple. Just look at what you own and make sure it's working right and put some sensors on sensors on it so it simplifies your job. Yeah, know what's going on in the field, right? Especially when you have when you have, and and that's what I kind of go back to before about people not knowing is that what's happening a lot in the world now is it's not so many, <clears throat> not as many people that are big asset owner operators. So there's a difference between an asset owner and an asset owner operator. Right, your 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 big time players, your next eras, your RWEs, your EDFs, like here in the states, they've got blade engineering teams. They're looking into CMS systems. They have robust inspection plans. They're monitoring things. You know, they're they're looking at lightning data. They're doing these other stuff. But there's a lot of asset owners out there that are basically financial companies. Right, they don't have engineers on staff. They don't have people on site. They buy the turbines. They develop the site or buy buy the site already developed. And then they have an FSA where the OEM takes over and watches after the thing for them. So they just don't know these things, but then they end up getting caught end of warranty. All of a sudden they got all these damages to, to take care of or, or they get caught having to re- pay to repair lightning damages because it was a part of their contract they don't, but they didn't monitor for lightning damage and these different things. So there's a lot of people out there that uh, are flying blind. And so they say great things. A lot of people are doing this stuff and it's things you know, but if you're not a specific engineer. It's complicated. Yeah, it's better to read a document like this or listen to experts like Rosemary or, or the you know the company I work for, Windpower Lab, or or when dealing with Lightning, Allen, or any of these CMS companies or other experts in the field, uh, learn the lessons from the experts instead of trying instead of taking the black eyes and the lumps yourself. Joel, over the weekend, because I was sitting there in that urgent care, I decided to put out a little summary of what I thought on the lightning aspects, because the, the DMV article goes on to say for lightning things is to, they're going to update the IEC spec for lightning. And uh, they're, they're going to uh, suggest, I don't want to say requires, because it's not a requirement, but it will be because insurance companies are involved to put some lightning monitors on your turbines so you can see the current waveform or the lightning pulses and that kind of thing. I don't, been in the lightning world a long time. I'm not sure what you're going to do with that data. It's just like too much info, right? And we already have that info. It's too complicated for operators to sift through. Like, what are you going to do with it? That's why we created the Lassie system at Power Lab, right? It's got to be simpler. We will do it in the background for you and then just give you notifications of, here, this is what you need to do. This is the, here's what you need to do to your turbine. Not necessarily, here's all the, the engineering data, data analysis, data science that you have to do. Like, that's... You know, people don't have time for that. I think the Lassie system makes a lot of sense. Uh, in places where we're seeing there's a lot of lightning strikes and you you need high levels of accuracy, I think putting on a lightning sensor makes a lot of sense. The the one from Ping is probably the least expensive one on the market at, at the moment because it tells you you've had a lightning strike, an actual lightning strike, and then it can determine if there's damage to the blade and send out an alert. So that makes sense on the cost side of it for sure. Uh, and, and Joel, you're right. If if you got a farm, it's not a lot of turbines, you're not in a strong lightning area, for sure. And the Lassie system makes total sense, even on large wind farms in the States, because at least it gives you a sense of what the hell's going on. If you don't have anything on your 
blades right now, your turbine now, that at least gives you some oversight to it, right? Monitor them somehow. Modern, but it doesn't have to be expensive or complicated. And that's what I want everybody to hear is like, don't, don't, don't make it too complicated. Uh, and after reading this, I've been in three separate industries in my career. Start off in spacecraft, which you make one or two spacecraft, maybe a year. Moved over to aerospace where you're making dozens, maybe a couple hundred of aircraft a year. And then being around this wind turbine business a little bit, uh, where you're making thousands of something a year, <laughs> right? Because of the quantity it changes the way that the manufacturing and the engineering have to happen. And as Rosemary was pointing out, uh, things have to go faster, right? When you're producing thousands of things, you just gotta be faster. What I have noticed in all three industries is just the level of quality changes dramatically as you get in and the organizations change. But uh, to a company, the ones that I've seen work are ones where manufacturing and engineering are working together. They're not two separate siloed organizations. The engineers are not free from criticism from manufacturing. And the manufacturing is not free from criticism, criticism from the engineers. They need to be kind of coupled together. And the, the management over top of those companies needs to force that interaction. So it's not, I design it and then I don't worry about it. No. <laughs> you're designing it and you're living it, what's happening on the floor. That's where you seem to get the best kind of product coming out. And engineers don't like getting your hands dirty. Let's just face it. Like a lot of engineers like to sit up there and type on the computer. It's nice and have your coffee and your thing. And it's sure. And a lot of manufacturing doesn't like talking to engineering because they're upstairs in their air conditioned offices. You know, it's the nature of the business. You're exactly right. And one of the issues that we have within the wind turbine business is logistics, right? Because these blades are getting so damn big that if you're going to build a wind farm in in India, I, there's there's factories over there, right? They're not getting designed there. They're getting designed in Germany. They're getting designed in Vest in Denmark or, or wherever. Um, and, and there's manufacturing all over the place. So those engineers aren't in there embedded in the factory. It makes it hard. As soon as you open the second factory, and Boeing went through this, right? So Boeing went through this. I'll use Boeing as an example because they had problems. When they had all the factories up in Washington where all the engineers were, then they opened a factory to make the 787 down in South Carolina. And sure enough, right, they started having problems because of the lack of oversight. I think that the engineer couldn't walk down on the coffee break and kick the tires on an airplane. They were now 2,000 miles away from it. Uh, those interactions create problems, and Boeing's been teething through those. And I think it's a sim similar thing that we see in wind, where engineers and the manufacturing are thousands of miles apart. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Joel, our wind farm of the week is the Rattlesnake Road Wind Farm up in Oregon. So EDP Renewables North America is actually celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Rattlesnake Road wind farm in Arlington, Oregon. And Arlington is like in the center of the state, right along the border with Washington. 
A uh, nice area, by the way. Uh, the 103-megawatt project in Gilliam County produces enough energy power, the equivalent of 29,000 Oregon homes annually. Uh, Rattlesnake Road represents an estimated capital investment of $226 million and contributes uh, to the local economy in a variety of different ways. Uh, during construction, the project created more than 100 full-time equivalent jobs, and, and it currently employs 17 permanent positions to operate and maintain the project. Yikes. Uh, Rattlestick Road has also contributed more than $23 million worth of spending within the 50-mile radius as everybody goes out and buys gas and has sandwiches. and Snacks at lunch, coffee. Yeah, got to have that. Yeah, all, all the good stuff. And, and in addition, the, the wind farm has dispersed more than $8 million to landowners through land lease payments and paid more than $13 million to local governments, uh, area schools, etc., uh, in form of payments and taxes and those kind of good things. So it's a huge money dump in the in sort of middle of Oregon. That's a great thing, right? Uh, and it's a 15-year project. So, that, Joel, you know they're going to be getting ready for a repower probably in the next year or two. Absolutely. You know, this is – I want to stop you there for a second, Alan, and I'm, I like that uh, we're going through some of these stats here because in the background uh, for our listeners here, we've been talking about some of the public relations and, and things that uh, – we feel maybe the wind industry doesn't do that well. And sharing this year, $8 million to landowner lease payments in the area, $13 million to local governments with uh, benefits for schools and emergency services, infrastructure. I'm sure they helped with some roads and things around there. $23 million just spent in the community. This is one wind farm. In the United States, there's hundreds of wind farms. This is, a this is uh, you know, there's 72,000 and change tur- wind turbines around the country. So this is just a small snippet of what the wind industry gives back to the world as well. Yeah, I think this is great. So congratulations to Rattlesnake Road Wind Farm. You are our wind farm of the week. Joel, you know, we, we were on Twitter and we're getting a pretty good response from it already. So people can check out Weathergar Lightning Tech's Twitter page and you can watch full episodes of the Uptime Podcast. But uh, Joel, you're on Twitter also. Yeah, so at Joel Saxum is my handle on Twitter, but what I'm trying to focus on is the same things we do on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast, so you can see that's kind of what I've got Twitter set up for, but it is to share some of the innovation, technology, permitting things, um, government activities within wind, uh, what the OEMs are doing, and all the above, uh, all over the world. So the same thing we're doing with the with the podcast, we're sharing as well on Twitter. Come and, Come and check it out. Yeah, Rosemary's on Twitter also, so you can check out Rosemary. Uh, Rosemary's uh, Twitter handle is at ENG with Rosie. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.